0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Not only do Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. And If you don't like your first pair, you can keep them, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. I love Mack Weldon, and I gotta say... Check out the t shirts. I love the solid color t shirts that Mac Weldon has. And the website is so easy to use. You can sort through all this stuff that they have there. You can look at different colors. It's just a perfect shopping experience for 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code WATCH at checkout.
1: I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk.
2: Now! Hello
0: and welcome to The Watch, my name is Chris Ryan, I am editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, it's a long day's journey into a long night,
1: it's Andy Greenwald! Look man, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to join you for the podcast today, then I heard Gladiator 2 is coming <laughs> and you knew, you knew I'd be here with you!
0: Does this mean like... I will happily talk about Ridley Scott jumping two feet first into Gladiator 2 if you want to. I want to talk a little bit about all the Game of Thrones news that came
1: this week. Oh, sure, sure. We'll do that, too.
0: But let's talk about Gladiator, and then later on in the episode, I'm going to be joined by Juliet Littman, and we're going to talk about the middle few episodes of Bodyguard. Um, which and are, we,
1: are we going to talk about the chilling adventures of Sabrina? <laughs> I would love to. Have you watched any? I, you, I do my homework for this show. You dialed up some Sabrina. On Hallow's Eve. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Halloween That's
0: crazy, dude. Yeah. Um, oh man, I'm just overwhelmed now. And I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about Homecoming because it's coming out uh, tomorrow. So I just wanted yes. to just get people hyped up for that. Let's start out with Game of Thrones.
1: So, Chris, I just want to say for our listeners, are you relieved that we no longer have to do the podcast you thought we were going to do where we just... like think of movies from the last 20 years and just imagine the sequels? I know, seriously. Like, a river still runs through it. They (laughs) could make that. (laughs) Bagger Vance got more legends. Play another round, (laughs) Bagger. Uh, (laughs) I mean, why not?
0: Okay, so Game of Thrones really quickly. It's Game of Thrones season officially. It's November... We are probably November, December, about half a year away from Game of Thrones season eight coming out,
1: right? Do, do we have any intel? Is it? Are we thinking April? Is that the latest thinking? It's, there's no, I mean, there's nothing.
0: no official, there's no official time. And you know, I had personally felt like, oh, what they're going to do is try to sort of golden handcuff it to the prequel. Like there will at least right. be a trailer. Uh, for the prequel at the end or in some point during the Game of Thrones season. And I think that they are still pretty much on track. The prequel does not have an official name, although George R.R. Martin has taken to calling it The Long Night, which is obviously given Game of Thrones scholars, which Andy and I are not really scholars. We are fans. But the scholars have taken that, and they can deduce what this prequel might be about. But, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because it, it it's so fascinating to watch this from where we started talking about this show and, and the strong, strong undergirding of plot and mythology that it had from the books to seeing Off and Weiss kind of have to go off and, and take this thing across the goal line themselves. And now we're kind of going somewhat backwards where Martin is involved, although this does feel like it's not as rooted in his writing as much as some of the mythology that he's created around the story.
1: I think it's important to say that the person most involved in the continuing HBO franchise is George R. R. Martin's financial advisor, <laughs> who I believe is intimately connected to all versions of this show, Are you, uh, the show. You're talking about Barry R. 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 Martin. <laughs> I mean, this, whoever this person is has chosen the right job and basically has to has to like operate an iron bank somewhere <laughs> in New Mexico. That's right. Um, you know, I, one thing worth noting, and I think that you know our maester Jason Concepcion and 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 Mallory Rubin would definitely have more insight into this. But it's worth noting that George R. R. Martin. It's not like he's just relaxing. You know, he has night flyers coming on Sci-Fi. He's actively engaged in a number of other projects, uh, meeting with studios, doing things. You know, and presumably also still writing the other Game of Thrones books. And blogging one about the Nets, if, Yeah. <laughs> well, one wonders if the main spine, the main franchise that is now. Um, you know, has been the TV show and the book series. It's got to be exhausting, and the pressure is enormous. So I feel like it's, on some level, it's probably a relief to fully step away, hand over the reins to, to David Benioff and um, D.B. Weiss, and be able to flesh out something completely. And it's, you know, again, it's worth noting, uh, veteran TV writer Jane Goldman is the one in charge of this new franchise, but Martin is very much involved in it with her. I think he was partnered with her and with... Um, um, Brian Cogman, Cogman yeah. a current writer, on their spinoff projects. Uh, that spinoff project didn't go or hasn't gone yet and the other ones it didn't really win the bake-off. So it's got to be kind of exciting for him and look, I, what do we know? We know Naomi Watts was just cast as she the She was
0: cast as a socialite with a dark secret.
1: And young, handsome British dude from Poldark was yeah. also cast. You're, and so thank God the young, boy, handsome British Jack dude factory yeah. has, was not shut down. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, I'm very curious your thoughts on this, but from a complete outsider perspective, not just outsider, like we don't actually know what the decision making has been behind the scenes on this, but outsider in that I don't really know what the long night super is. I, I just have a feeling that they, you know, they, they, they cautiously greenlit five pilot scripts. They zeroed in on this one as the one of the most potential. I think it's very important, not knowing anything about the script, but I think it's very positive and important that a woman is at the helm of this franchise as opposed to recycling the same type of person that did the last story because I think this the other Game of Thrones got some criticism some of it deserved for its treatment of women on screen and I think it's time for a different perspective on it um and then this casting is terrific and so you know fingers crossed obviously we said the same thing about James Mangold directing a Boba Fett movie but (laughs) So far it seems like they're doing things right.
0: Yeah, so the long night is in reference to the age of heroes, which is uh basically this this period of time thousands of years before the story of Game of Thrones that the television audience knows it and it essentially covers the sort of rise of the White Walkers. I think the, the White Walkers, this is from uh, winterscoming.net, but the White Walkers came for the living riding their pale spiders as big as hounds, bringing with them a darkness that lasted for a generation. And this event was known as the Long Night. And one thing that I think is pretty interesting is that that does set it up similarly, I think, to you've got an age of political intrigue and infighting between humans that are then confronted with this almost supernatural evil at their doorstep. And that is where Game of Thrones is winding up. So it is, it is kind of fascinating to see them maybe run back some familiar beats, if not the actual story. But I think that it's so it's so early, it's really hard to like have any make any real assumptions about these things. The fact that Naomi Watts is cast as a as a quote-unquote socialite suggests that you will still have some of the same chamber whispers that we have in Game of Thrones, which I think is something that you and I were both really into.
1: She has the right coloring to be a Lannister. I assume the Lannisters existed in some form there, and that's kind of exciting to to imagine. It's sort of hard to imagine any other ending for the series that doesn't exist yet other than what the creation of the wall and what you know what we now know is a 300,000 year, I don't know that how much time has passed, but basically a pause button until the problem came back again, right? Yeah. So does that rob this of some of its potentially dramatic stakes. Maybe it does. Um, Maybe it doesn't. We don't actually know what the battle or who the characters are going to be. But it also offers an opportunity, potentially, to go deeper and in different directions than Game of Thrones, much like Better Call Saul has used the goodwill of uh, Breaking Bad, to give us really fascinating character studies and storytelling. I mean, we've said this when we were talking about Better Call Saul, but the devotion and care which that Better Call Saul gave to the Chuck and Jimmy relationship, to the character of Kim Wexler, those are the chips you, you trade up for when you know you have an audience and you know you have Gus Fring cooking meth or about to start cooking meth in the background. And similarly with this show, everyone just wants... Like, hot British people saying bitchy things to each other and using swords to kill each other, right? Yeah. That, and that's baked in. Yeah. So could this show go deeper and weirder into the stuff that has always interested us on the margins? Maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to yeah, find out. Yeah, and they
0: could also tell some stories. I think there's still a lot of meat left on the bone, and I'm assuming that that meat left on the bone looks like a giant Renaissance fair turkey leg. But, you know, there's stories <laughs> like brand the Builder that I think I've just... in Talking to other Game of Thrones fans is one of those, like, Oh man if they could ever tell that story that would just be incredible and the, the, I think time-wise that would somewhat line up with what they're they're positing the long night as
1: It seems like the legend of Azora High which is I guess like the chosen one kind of like the the, the ass-kicking Jesus legend that has propelled Wait Game of Thrones Are and you I telling me why do they that-
0: not just call this Game of Thrones colon Ass-kicking Jesus
1: well, actually, that is how they market the show in some parts of Eastern Europe.
0: In Romania, it's works better in Bulgaria.
1: Um, but that Jon Snow is the rebirth of this legend, and or is it Daenerys? And we'll find out all of it. So if this show is—if this prequel is about that as well, like who was the original Azor high who like, ended the long night and brought light back to the world— Wouldn't the more interesting story to tell be not just who is this person, but what does this idea even mean in this fictional universe? What is this idea of a messiah? You know what I mean? Instead of just... Because in the current Game of Thrones, it's just sort of a free-floating title that is going to be bestowed upon whoever kicks the most ass at the finale to win, right? But so... Again, I just I'm I'm circling back and maybe this is the a typical greenwald note of like let's make it wonkier and more boring, but I would be very curious about like messianic <laughs> thinking and legends and how they are formed in a different way than just well this guy's got the flaming sword now, so let's go with him.
0: You always have the flaming sword. Let's talk about let's talk about this <laughs> teenage witch show.
1: Okay, Chris. You know, I know the Ringer is on the front lines of Riverdale core. Alison Herman wrote about Riverdale and wrote about Sabrina, and wrote about the other um, Berlanti-affiliated show. You people should check out that piece. Where are you with these things? Because I, you know, we talked about Riverdale, and we were very impressed with it for what it was when it debuted. I don't think either of us have sustained interest in it, but you know, I've got those deep Archie cuts, so this stuff resonates. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you have that. I,
0: I would say that uh, my experience with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina are, is, and they were both uh, developed by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. Um, so he did Riverdale, and now he's doing uh, Sabrina. And my experience for both shows are pretty similar, which is that I watched the first few, and I was like, that's pretty good. And then I took a step back, and other, other parts of my life called me, uh, to, called my attention. And then I came back in, like, a little bit later. Now, in Sabrina, I'm just talking about, like, an episode or two. My wife's been watching it all week. And with Riverdale, it's been, like, a couple of seasons, but then every once in a while, Allison will mention something, and I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, they did what? (laughs) And now it's like, what? So that even happened just in the course of a couple of episodes of Sabrina where I was just like, I came in and I said, what did I miss? And I felt like my wife talked for 32 minutes. That being said, these shows are moods. You know what I mean? You don't have to, they're incredibly plot heavy and there's so much story. I would challenge even like the people who are on these shows to know every single storyline. But essentially these are shows that like look really good are a ton of fun, are pretty pulpy, and really seem to, like, get something about how if you're going to do an episodic television show like this, like, what you need to do on a week-to-week or episode-to-episode basis to keep people engaged.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think I think both shows are super impressive. I think I am super not committed to watching either of them past us discussing them on the podcast, to be fully honest. But I remain very impressed by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa. So he's a playwright, comic book fan, is now the chief creative officer of Archie Comics, and really the guy who convinced the stodgier people, the Goldwater family, who who always have always published, or yeah, I guess for the last couple of decades, published Archie Comics, that what they own is a, a series of American icons, and these icons are um, transferable to different settings and possibilities and imaginations, and you're never going to hurt the core brand because the core brand is deeply understandable. Archie Andrews, all American, right? Um, the love triangle with Betty and Veronica, and in the case of Sabrina, who's always been an ancillary character, a teenage witch. I mean, it's right there in the name. Yeah. And before he started making these shows for TV, he reimagined the comics in brilliant ways. There's, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I urge people to check it out, especially around Halloween time. And a bunch of them are in graphic novel form. There's a series he did called Afterlife with Archie, which is an Archie, which is a zombie apocalypse comes to Riverdale. And it's really well done, riveting and true to the comics, the original comics, but still made for us now and for grown-ups. And he did a similar thing with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and really leaning into the occulty, otherworldly aspect of it, but never losing that deep appreciative sense of like, this is an American icon, this is camp. And he certainly was able to do that on TV too. And here we are with this sort of companion series that'll inevitably overlap. And it is not the Talking Cat show that was on ABC. This much is to much my wife's e-
0: chagrin, she was really hoping for a, a few more one-liners from Salem. The thing that Ch- Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Riverdale share that I kind of like is this outsiders, rebel without a cause aesthetic, but with uh, contemporary social politics. Essentially, you know, and um, taking on like more, more modern storylines, but while still having you know, people wearing boxy 501s and cool, like, cardigans and stuff like that. It has, like, a very defined aesthetic that's essentially Twin Peaks meets 90210. Was that, that fair mm-hmm. to say? Sure. Yeah, and I think that that's, like, a very successful kind of postmodern, you know, super juice of of, of references that, I, that I, I really don't mind having on at all. I don't think, like, I'm d- deeply emotionally connected to it, but I really enjoy it when I watch it.
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, take this with all the grains of salt necessary, considering the source and the age of both of us when talking about it. But this show strikes me as very, very, very of the moment and very appropriate for this moment in this generation, you know, where it it just has a lot of. And I'm making I'm actually sounding very reductive when I talk about like the buzzwords that the show um, employs, but it really doesn't employ buzzwords. It really embraces Themes and ideas that I think are the lifeblood of young people today. I mean, there is a deep sense of absurdity and surreality and looming horror that is met with um, a very delicate balance of um, terror and also ironic humor. And, yeah, yeah, and and humor and 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 um, and sarcasm. Uh, you know, the characters in this show are arch, they are like gender fluid and sexy, but also a little bit repressed. They're deeply campy shows that are self-aware and they move very quickly. And you know that I think the attention span alone is very, very like post-iPhone. And even in watching the Sabrina pilot, which you know, there are aspects of it I admired and aspects of it which were driving me crazy. And some of that might be because I'm watching it through the filter of making a pilot myself. And one thing I've noticed is that when you get a lot of time to work on a pilot, you get impatient more quickly. You are not just five steps, you are 10, 20 steps ahead of a potential audience because you've seen it so many times, you're already feeling like things are running long. You better change it. You better fix it. And my feeling about this pilot was, I just, I wished it would calm down. And I couldn't tell if it was (laughs) me being like piloted out or me being super old because it just, you know, it was like, it it doesn't even pause, not to hold your hand, but just to let something breathe before it moves into the next scene and the next escalation or the next introduction of characters or, you know, scissors throwing demon.
0: Yeah, it's a dunk tank pilot. It's like you dot, you're you just like completely immersed in it Im- immediately. And I think that kind of goes, I, it kind of fits the overall atmosphere of the show. You said something pretty interesting there where you're talking about making television for an iPhone generation. And I think you could obviously apply that to attention spans. And that kind of, like, leads pretty is- interestingly into talking about Homecoming, which is our buddy Sam Smail's new show that's debuting Friday on Amazon. I'm not sure how many episodes go up at once. Do you know, if th- is it the full season or is it just a It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing, just as well. I don't want to blow smoke up Sam's ass here because he's obviously, like, uh, somebody who we've we've talked with a lot and you work with, but I do think he's figured something out with this show. And, you know, I'm about two thirds of the way into this season. It is one of my favorite shows of the year. It might be the best looking thing I've seen on TV this year. And there's a lot of competition for that from Atlanta, from Maniac, from a bunch of different places. But what I think I found is that Sam has kind of like perfected the, the chemistry of this particular soft drink. Like he has figured out a way to make really deep diving drama and compress it into a thirty-minute or less, sometimes a little bit more, but around that time frame. And I think it's it's kind of a miracle. And you, we can get into all sorts of the th- like what the story is about and the themes and what the performances are doing after people get a chance to see it. But I, I wanted to get your impressions with, with the caveat that you're obviously bought and paid for by Smail Corp. Uh, he,
1: he is my boss. Yeah. So like, I know um, that you moment, can't
0: really you don't want you want to come off like a company man, but no, I, but I, I think but I that have there's to say, something very, very cool strain, happening
1: here. This particular strain of ask history from you right now is incredible, considering he came into the bay this morning and was still just practicing his dunks about Sneaky Pete being on your top 10. Like, he wasn't in the room for five minutes before he was talking about the top 10 list he's preparing for us and how he can't, quote, pull Orion and put something <laughs> like that on his list. So
0: it's just like one through eight is pull dark.
1: Just look, look, just what I'm saying is it's even more impressive. People need to realize it's even more impressive that you're praising him, considering the torrent of trolling and and abuse that we have to put up with from him offline. Um, so for people who don't know, uh, this is a, a filmed adaptation of a, of a podcast. that's a very popular scripted podcast. Eli and Micah, who wrote the podcast, served as the writers and showrunners of this adaptation. I do really like it, and you can ignore my opinions on it freely, but I do really like the show, and one of the things that I like about it is the understanding that if you are taking something from one format to another, in this case, podcast a TV show, you need to be fluid and creative in your ideas about what format means and what matters. And again, for people who don't know, yes, this has an incredible cast of Julia Roberts and Sissy Spacek and Dermot Mulroney and Shea Wiggum, Stefan James and Bobby Cannavale too. But here's the thing. Here's the most important takeaway, guys. It's a 30 minute drama. It's a 30-minute drama, and there aren't enough of those. And it helps. It really helps. And, you know, obviously Amazon is, is binge mode designed, and so you'll have a chance to watch a lot of episodes. I found the first episode of Homecoming to be um, visually dazzling, but I f- found myself having trouble finding my way in to it. But honestly, with 30 minutes, it doesn't matter. Because you understand some on some, like, deep, deep constitutional level that it's just the first taste and you move quickly into the next one and then I found an emotional hook to so latch onto in the second and then away you go. And yeah. I had an experience watching the second episode that I haven't had watching a lot of television recently, which is I was truly gobsmacked that it was over when it was. My brain is wired differently now and I was settling in. I was enjoying it. I was settling in and it shocked me when it ended and, you know, look, he does credits really well. So yeah. even those were a pleasure. But, I guess what we're saying is our our preview recommendation here is that it's we really like the show, but as we sometimes do, take a step back and as a, you know, as fans and people who are interested in TV, check it out and see what it does to your chemistry, um, which is a good metaphor to use when talking about Homecoming.
0: Absolutely, and I would just say in terms of the direction and Sam directed all the episodes of the season. Obviously, you know it's become very in fashion to have, you know, these really interesting visual directors working on, on television. We have obviously been talking about that for a really long time. I think what Sam does on Homecoming is precisely and perfectly match the material with the visuals. And that is something that's kind of a lost art and direction. And sometimes, you know, you have people come in and they're just like, I have this vision. And it's kind of like, it's about whether or not you can marry the script with the, the vision or, or, or what have you. Sam elevates the material, I think, with the way it looks. And I think it's just, uh, you know, there's obvious homages to Hitchcock and to 70s paranoiac political conspiracy thrillers, and we'll talk all about those in the coming weeks, but really savor every frame because I think that it feels like something where every frame was really thoughtfully considered.
1: Can I ask you something before I I duck out? Um, You know, there's some billboards going up all over Los Angeles right now for a, it's not a new show, it's a returning show. It's hitting Netflix in the next week or two. It's kind of a rebooting, a reimagining of a program. It's a program about some up-and-coming businessmen south of the border who have a popular product and yeah. look for ways, sometimes violent yeah. ways, to um, access and open up new markets for that product. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you <laughs> knew about the show yeah. and if there's anything you wanted to say, just an anticipation of it, of its uh, arrival and in its new form.
0: So... Uh, Andy is talking about Narcos.
1: I'm sorry, what? He's talking
0: about... Narcos! (laughs) Which comes out on my birthday, of all (laughs) days. It does not. It comes out the day after. I think it was like, I'm... And uh, I have watched... (laughs) I've watched a couple episodes of the new season. You did? And I really, really encourage people to get excited for this. One of my favorite filmmakers from Mexico, Escalante, directed a few episodes... It's got a different feel. Michael Pena is great in this. Uh, Diego Luna is great in this. It's just a. It's a, It's really interesting to see what they're doing with Narcos.
1: Wow, I, I'm excited. I was worried that people maybe were listening to this podcast with a sleeping infant in the back seat or something, and I wanted to change their reality. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yes. Um, and guys, I you know I'm excited to watch TV again. Like I feel like there's some stuff out there.
0: All right. Well, we'll talk more about Homecoming on Monday. We've got some fun guests coming up. So have a good weekend, everybody. Everybody watch Homecoming. Everybody finish Bodyguard. And we'll talk to you next week.
1: Is Juliet coming on? Yeah,
0: Juliet's going to be here in a second to talk about Bodyguard.
1: Tell Juliet hi for me and also ask her, does she know that Meghan Markle's pregnant?
0: (laughs) My first question.
1: You should ask her about that because I feel like that's that's something she'd want to know about. Okay. Okay, great job, Fransky. Bye. Bye.
0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by DC Universe. If you're a DC fan, you have got to check out the latest live-action series, Titans, available now on DC Universe. Titans premiered on October 12th, and new episodes are available for streaming every Friday through the end of the year. Titans, the first original series to launch on DC Universe, follows a group of young, soon-to-be superheroes, including Dick Grayson, who's moonlighting as the dangerous vigilante Robin, now independent of his longtime partnership with Batman, Rachel Roth, a.k.a. Raven, the mysterious. Corey Anders, a.k.a. Starfire, and the lovable Gar Logan as the mischievous Beast Boy. As they get caught up in a conspiracy that could bring hell on Earth, they become not only a surrogate family, but a fearless band of new young heroes. Check out this gritty take on the classic Teen Titans franchise from executive producers Akiva Goldsman, Jeff Johns, Greg Berlanti, Greg Walker, Sarah Schechner, and John Fawcett. Titans is available on DC Universe on your favorite devices... Join the ultimate DC membership at dcuniverse.com for only $7.99 a month or get 20% off an annual membership. That's dcuniverse.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming, Dell Cinema technology makes the XPS 13 the perfect laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash dellcinema. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. There are job sites that send you tons of wrong resumes to sort through. That's not smart. But you know what is smart? Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash watch to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a 1,000 reviews. And right now... Listeners of The Watch can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash watch. That's ziprecruiter.com slash watch, ziprecruiter.com slash watch. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now I am joined by Juliet Litman to have a chat about Bodyguard. Okay, Juliet, I've watched... I'm on episode five. I have not watched episode five okay. yet, but I'm on episode five. And so this will be a spoiler inclusive episode taking in the first four episodes. Sure. You finished Bodyguard.
2: Yes. I Kaya
0: will. has finished Bodyguard.
2: Kaya and I are on the money team. Kaya judged it. me
0: with her eyes on Monday when I said, she said, Did you watch Bodyguard? And I was like, Yeah, I watched an episode about it. how about you? She was like, I watched all of it.
2: I did too. There's nothing wrong with that. There's fact. nothing
0: wrong with it. In fact, it just makes me feel ashamed as a television podcaster.
2: I wish I had more. I'm like, What do I do now? Well,
0: that's a great great way to start it off. Yeah. What an incredibly paced show. Such an amazing like return on investment, you know?
2: Does it remind you of Homeland?
0: It reminds me of how I felt first season Homeland.
2: Me too. It's like a feeling I have a TV feeling I haven't felt in a while, which is exhilarating and yeah. exciting.
0: So I think that I, I, I'm i curious about this. I came to you this morning and, you know, in the third episode, uh, the end of the third episode of Bodyguard, there.
2: Huge spoiler warning. Yeah, well, dun, 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 dun. It's, it's, we're
0: spoiling up through know, episode four. But even
2: so, just one more warning. Here you go.
0: There's an explosion at a speech that the Home Secretary, Julia Monagy, was Home giving. Secretary.
2: Secretary. Secretary? How do they say it? Home sec- uh, they, Secretary. Let's just call her
0: mum. 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 There's an explosion at a speech she's giving at, at a college, uh, and she passes away from her injury. She dies from her She injuries. blows up. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not funny. No. But I found myself immediately just kind of being like... That's not why I was watching the show. I was watching the show because of the central tension between David and Julia and this idea that they could be so politically and sort of philosophically apart, but so close together— in other ways,
2: so, so you're saying you were like shocked and bummed that she got. I was just very,
0: I was very axed. into their romance, and I was uh-huh. very into the the tension that they had on screen. And I think that you know, obviously, the show is pivoting towards unraveling this conspiracy around Julia's death. Sure. Now. But were you disappointed to
2: see that the, the way it was happening that she died? Yeah. No, I wasn't at all. I didn't really care about their romance, and I'm a big romance person. Obviously, I love melodrama, and I love um, a soap opera, but I didn't find it that believable, and that's because I really like the show. Mm-hmm. I find Richard Madden's character a little confusing. How so? I can't tell what his true motivation is. Like, is it to be a patriot? Is it to...
0: Avenge per- the deaths of his friends in Afghanistan.
2: Yeah. Is it is it to pursue a political agenda? I've finished the season, as discussed, and sure. I still don't completely know, and... To me, that's a failure of writing, not acting, whereas like with his counterpart on Game of Thrones, Kit Harrington, I'd be like, yeah, that guy's the worst actor. So
0: this is not the first British television show that has been uh, sort of presented initially as a somewhat limited series and turned into a juggernaut, and then they've done another series or uh-huh. two of it. So Broadchurch is not unlike this, where right. if you watch Broadchurch, you're not like— what's going to happen in season two of Broadchurch. I love Broadchurch. I love Broadchurch too, but I think it was so popular. They were like, well, we have to do something here. Yeah, Uh, The Fall is lost like that with Jamie Dornan and uh, Gillian Anderson, where they were just like, it was pretty much like a whodunit, Mm -hmm. like cat and mouse thriller. And then they teased it out for another three or four seasons. Now, you can kind of get away with that in England because you can just do a four episode show like they do with Sherlock, sometimes just three. Yeah. But I do think that this was something where the popularity of bodyguard might have actually t- changed the way it's because there's going to be a second season of this show so it might have changed the perception of it
2: interesting i have a kind of a theory about why it's so popular okay. at least at least this is what one thing i like about it and this is like, why it's
0: so popular in england
2: yeah or, and i think uh, probably i think here, yeah. here as well similar thing i mentioned this on jam session i found it like at first I found the central concerns about terrorism to be like already dated. Yeah. I was like, this feels like Homeland, which like feels like a different era sure. six or seven years ago. But I think there's something like almost relaxing in in the formula of, of this show. Like-
0: mid-aughts yes. uh terror terror yes. plots yeah for yeah
2: sure. you're sort of like you know what the beats are and it doesn't actually reflect the political climate of the Western world as closely as it might have in like 2011 yeah and in some ways it's like a th- it's almost like a throwback show like they they don't make them like this anymore like no. he, and I can't remember the last like thriller that came up like this I mean homeland is still on but no one's talking about it
0: yeah I'm trying to think of like I mean yeah you're right it is sort of like 24 it is sort of like homeland and that if it and and it also shares those shows um propulsive nature yes. like it, it every scene just feels like it's in and out just enough time and uh, i think actually one of the things i like most about it is at least for an American viewer, I'm sure for some English viewers, they're a little bit more well-versed in like the different code names for different parts of the security services sure. and the police. But it feels very immersive yeah. where it doesn't take that much time to explain like, well, Ann Sampson is doing this and Mike Travis is doing that. And, and uh, you know, Stephen, the guy from the intelligence services, like this is how they're all separated. Sure. You're just kind of like meant to figure it out as you go along. Uh, one of the funniest things about it is that a lot of the people who pl- work for these different, the police and the security services, several of them were in The Thick of It, which was Armando Iannucci's yes. show before uh, Veep. And to see people who were in this incredible satire of government now working straight-faced in government, it would be like seeing the cast of Veep all of a sudden in the West Wing. Right. It's really funny.
2: That is funny. I didn't watch that, but I, I like that. That is like that's sort of like... John Krasinski going from playing Jim Halpert to Jack Ryan That's basically. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, uh, we well, let's, can we talk a little bit about Keely Hawes and yeah, talk a little bit about, so did you I, I like her character?
2: Yeah, I did like her character. But in some ways, I just found that relationship to be like, in some ways, the most like predictable part of the show. Mm-hmm. Like, very clearly, she was like going to be a woman in power and that was going to threaten some men around her. And, um, you know, She would, like, get into a relationship with Richard Madden, and it just sort of felt like that was, in some ways, formulaic in a bad way, but I don't think there's anything wrong with her. Sure. I just didn't, like, find that relationship particularly compelling. Also, it happened so quickly.
0: Yeah. I want to say, like, one of the things I really like about these shows, about about English television, too, is the... There's something familiar about it culturally, but there's just like, it's just different enough. Like, her her apartment in London yeah. is just different enough than apartments in New York City that you're just kind of like, it does feel almost like watching House
2: Hunters. Yeah, totally. Also, um, in LA, like, we're in cars so often, yeah. but in British shows, when transportation is a part of it, which, like, it often is, it feels so different. It's like, they start out on a train, yeah. and then, like, Julia and, what's his name? David. 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 I kind of think his name was David Butt the whole time. It's, it's, it's Bud, Bud, yeah. D-D-D-D. Yeah, he um, says
0: David Butt uh, yeah. like a, a bunch, so it's <laughs> it's easier to think that.
2: They're in cars a lot of the time. Yeah. And so there's like a real sense of motion that I also— and
0: really nice cars. Yes,
2: really nice cars. It's like Land Rovers. Land Rovers
0: and Jaguars, yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's like—that's like a status symbol. Like the kind of like the, the coding of the show to portray a certain type of person that might be out of touch from like the military. Yeah is really well done and it, it just it, that's the best thing about British TV it's like a few shades different but still very familiar
0: yeah I was—I also really like when they pull up to the prime minister's house when Julia's gonna like present him with the blackmail material that mm-hmm. she must have on him and it's checkers and I was like oh checkers that's where they did the Brexit deal <laughs> and I was like why am I getting excited about this it's not like fu- it's not like a fun pop cultural moment
2: everywhere they went when there'd be like a street name or something I would google it Yeah, and apparently the writer Jed Mercurio are you familiar with his Work by the not way. really, no, me neither. But apparently, he like embedded a lot of Easter eggs, and so he, he was, did like, Line
0: of Duty, right? I think, I think that so, was his other yeah. show. He did what like Easter eggs about like just London jokes,
2: yeah, basically. Well, in, like, like the in the
0: news. It shows London as this sprawling metropolis, yeah. like in a couple of the um action set pieces, especially the one where the truck is approaching the school. There's all this stuff with, like, roundabouts, and then there's, like, you know, whether or not, like, he's in some construction site and was like, did they, they switch cars? And there's just, like, a lot of, like, London traffic problems, right. which I really enjoy.
2: It's true. And, you know, I don't mean to be so flip about terrorism. No, It's not like it's, not like it's not a problem, but it, it, does, it does feel like, you know, the UK, they've been talking about Brexit for over two years. It's, like, hard to remember what— like that, only eighteen months ago, like someone rammed in a van mm-hmm. into people on on a bridge in London. Like it just is like a slightly different type of like political show. Yeah,
0: and it's also it's different. It's too. I was thinking about this with Vice coming and Christmas uh, and how differently we perceive governmental evil now. Yeah, and in in this show, it it really does feel like a two thousand and thirteen show yeah. where you know you're very suspicious of these faceless. Uh, bureaucrats and, and assassins in the, in the intelligence services, but you don't really know who they are, and they're also, quote-unquote, trying to protect you. But, like, there's just so much more inherent, like, even though, like, it's a lot of turmoil going on in England, like, they're, like, oh, we're in a state of emergency. My wife pointed out that um, the, the terror levels are really, like, it's, like, terror level is substantial. <laughs> it's, like, it's gone up from, like, alarming to substantial. <laughs> <laughs> the nuance. I love it. Yeah.
2: They don't need colors. They just have they have a uh, density, yeah, basically. Right. Um <laughs> what else are you watching right now? Anything? Um so I was like interested in watching more London-based shows. So Capital by John Lanchester is one of my favorite novels. Oh yeah. I never watched the BBC adaptation, but it's on Amazon Prime, so I fired that up. It's very good. It's I mean good.
0: would it's can you describe what it is for the listeners?
2: Sure. It's about this one fictional street in London called Peeps Road, P-E-P-Y-S. And uh Everyone who lives on the road receives a postcard that says, We want what you have. Mm. And it's a basically a, a kind of like a cross section of life in London at, at like the end of capitalism, basically. Oh wow. And it's about like a banker who doesn't get his bonus and how his wife is like a shopaholic. It's about like a elderly woman who has cancer and refuses chemo. It's a there's a plot about A Pakistani family who owns like a just like a corner store and then like kind of like all their trials and tribulations essentially and meanwhile there's like this mystery of like who is sending these postcards and what do they really want yeah Yeah. what do they really want what do they really mean so I, I absolutely love the book I feel like yeah I feel like watch listeners could be into this I think so so check it out and then what else am I watching? I really wish I had more bodyguard. I was just sort of like, well, what do I do now? Like, yeah. like what are the other British shows that I've missed out on that I should go back to? Do you
0: feel like I mean I I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but was that was there anything about the Netflix part of it that was made it so really easy or made you more definitely liable to like check it out?
2: Yeah, definitely because like. I was like, eh, I'm not sold on one, but I'm home. I might as well just sure. watch number two. So I'll keep going. Whereas like, if it was week to week, I think it, it may have felt differently. And back to your question about um, Julia Montague and Richard Budd. I think if I watched Richard, it with <laughs> <laughs> Richard Budd, yeah, as in bud. marijuana. yeah. I think if I had watched it week to week, I would have been more into their relationship. But yeah. when you binge a show, my friend Becky was just texting me about this. Like a romance arc comes and goes so quickly, you don't really have time to get attached.
0: Yeah. That's and, true.
2: And because I watched me Kai and I both just, you know, tore through it, there's no time to like really be like It's not exactly mere dare. Yeah, it's not Meridaire. It's not like I've... But that, that's a good... I mean, like,
0: I'm not... I'm joking, but it's like that took place over the course of, like, hours and hours and yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks.
2: Yes, it traversed, like, several phases of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was just thinking about it. Derek Shepard, McDreamy, has been gone from Grey's Anatomy for three or four seasons. We were at Greyland when he died. I
0: distinctly remember that Yeah. Day. Yes.
2: It was spoiled Spoiled for me by, oh, no, they did it in Entertainment Weekly, and I'm still furious.
0: Not to get too revealing, you had to re- excuse yourself yeah. from your desk.
2: I cried. I was very upset. I called my mom. I was very upset.
0: <laughs> I would be pissed off too if you've been watching that show for like nine years and you yeah. just come across like a random internet thing. Yeah, yeah.
2: It sucked. That's like one of the worst. That's like one of my like biggest TV traumas. Is is that being spoiled for me?
0: That's actually like the biggest thing right now. Is like I you know with Hill House, I was watching, and we were too trying. To, my me. wife and I were trying to watch it at like a more leisurely pace, like one every couple of days, and. You know, save them and, man, it's really hard to be on the internet if you want to save anything.
2: Well, I googled Keely Hawes to, like, catch up with her when I was watching the show. Uh And I didn't get any major spoilers, but I did know there was, like, an explosion coming because I saw, like, a headline that was, like, bodyguard blows itself up in the dumbest way possible or something like that. Ah, And so that was really quite irritating. Was
0: that an English... Uh, no, publication? it was American. Okay.
2: The Brits just went crazy for this show. Oh,
0: uh, the Brits just were like, every like, let's just watch, run it back. Let's totally. Let's just see it. Yeah.
2: You know what I was surprised was not a bigger hit there was um, Killing, Killing Eve. Killing Eve. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. I'm surprised it wasn't more popular.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm going in a couple weeks. I'll do some recon.
2: I was there a few weeks ago, and they had bus ads for Killing Eve, and I just feel like it wasn't really...
0: Where did you ask everybody getting off the bus, like, you watched the show? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: My friend lives in London, I was like, you gotta watch Killing Eve, and she didn't like, really care. Bodyguard has taken up all the airspace. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think Killing Eve is a better crafted show, but has fewer thrills. It builds a little bit more.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit more idiosyncratic and weird. Bodyguard yeah. is just like a real, like, romance meets a thriller. It's good.
2: Do you think I'm gonna like Little Drummer Girl? TV uh, yes. Show?
0: I think it really plays into some of your interests. Like Israel? And, like,
2: Mediterranean scenery. Nice. Yeah.
0: So, Little Drummer Girl's coming out in a couple of weeks as well with Alexander Skarsgård.
2: Do you have any theories Florence
0: about... Lawrence Pugh. Cool. Yeah.
2: Do you have any theories about how Bodyguard's gonna wrap up?
0: No. I don't. I think it'll just, like, expose one conspiracy, but, like, then there'll be a twist. and It'll be, like, season two of Bodyguard. The Lady from Notting Hill is, like, the big bad...
2: The lady from Notting Hill being on the show is great. If you have she's a, got a great walk. Great walk. Well, and it's new to me because in Notting Hill she's paralyzed <laughs> and right. she's in a wheelchair. <laughs> she, she, uh, I haven't seen her since Notting Hill, but she is married to um, the Down Abbey guy, Hugh Bonneville, in Notting Hill. And they're like the pillars of the dinner party scene where Julia Roberts gives the great speech about, about being anorexic and getting a nose job. It's one of the um, great dinner party scenes of all time, and I haven't seen this gal since then, and now she's walking. that <laughs> she's back in your life. <laughs> I'm so happy to have her back. <laughs> Juliet.
0: thank you so much for joining me today. Always. Thanks for uh, okay, asking. We'll be back on Monday. We'll probably talk a little bit about the end of Bodyguard, plus we'll have Homecoming, and a couple of other things. So we'll talk to you then, Branskis.